This talk is brought to you by iBiology.org, and this audio was taken from a video available on our website. Hello, my name is Jan Michael Peters. I'm a senior scientist and scientific director at the IMP, uh, the Research Institute of Molecular Pathology in Vienna, Austria. And I would like to talk to you about the role that uh, the cohesin complex and the DNA binding protein CTCF have in folding DNA in mammalian genomes. Now, in this uh, second part of uh, this lecture, which has two parts, I would like to discuss with you what the evidence is that we have in the field that cohesin has such a DNA folding function. Uh, then I would like to discuss with you how we think the CTCF protein contributes to this process. And I would like to discuss uh, with you uh, the loop extrusion hypothesis, which uh, provides a very interesting uh, novel view on how DNA loops might be formed. Now, in case you have seen part one of this lecture series, you might remember that one can see loops uh, relatively easily by light microscopy in very specialized uh, meiotic chromosomes, the so-called Lampert chromosomes. But it turns out it's much harder to visualize loops in somatic interface nuclei. Best one can do this for one or two or a few at the time by using hybridization of resonant labeling techniques. Uh, but it turns out that one can uh, identify such loops, long-range interactions, um, by a different technique called HiC, which was developed around 2009 by Eris Liebermann Eiden, uh, which um, uses a form aldehyde crosslinking in cell nuclei uh, to physically connect sequences that, at the point um, of crosslinking, had been in close proximity. And by processing this uh, crosslinked DNA through multiple steps, one can then use next-generation sequencing to identify which sequences had been cross-linked, i.e., had been in close proximity. And, and these long-range interactions, one can then visualize in, in, in heat maps, uh, as, as one is shown here, where typically uh, one shows um, DNA sequence on the x-axis and the same sequence on the y-axis, so that one can visualize um, by um, intensity of color uh, which regions in this particular locus interacted with other regions in the same locus. And one can do this for the whole genome in one high C map, or for a single chromosome, or one can zoom into a particular locus, as we did here. Now, if one looks um, at very long-range interactions, which are not shown here, one can visualize the compartments that are briefly mentioned in part one of my lecture. Uh, but these are not thought to depend on cohesion, so I will not talk about them today. Uh, but if one zooms in further, as we did here, one can see two different types of patterns. One of these appear as pyramid-like structures, uh, so-called topologically associating domains, within which many sequences seem to be able to interact with other sequences uh, in this particular domain, uh, first described in 2012 by Bing Ren and Edith Hurt. And a few years later, by increasing the resolution of this technique further, Eris Lieberman Eiden could show that in addition one can see also discrete uh, dots in these high C maps, which we refer to as loops. It's important to note that these loops might, in mechanistic terms, not be very different from the interactions um, that constitute uh, TADs. Uh, but these are the two types of patterns that one can identify, uh, which do represent folded DNA uh, within interface chromatin. Now, the question was, do these interactions depend on cohesion, as we had hypothesized and I explained in part one of this lecture series? And to be able to test it, it was important to inactivate cohesion very efficiently. 
Otherwise, one wouldn't see whether these structures really depend on these proteins uh, or not. And we and others did this by using a technique called uh, oxygen-mediated degradation, where one is fusing a, a sequence domain to a protein of interest, in our case, a subunit of cohesin, that can be recognized by an adapter protein that, under the right conditions, can then target the protein of interest to ubiquitin ligase, which can then multi-ubiquitinate this protein and thereby target it for destruction by the 26S proteasome. And this, this particular uh, tagging system, system uh, can be controlled by the absence or presence of the plant hormone auxin, which is needed for activation of this particular ubiquitin ligase system, which is being used here. Now, we did this for the cohesin subunit um, SCC1, which we tagged with such an auxin-inducible Degron tag, AID, but in addition also with GFP, so we could visualize it by fluorescence microscopy in cell culture. And when we added now auxin to such cells which contained only SCC1 fused GFP and AID, um, achieved by CRISPR genome editing, but no other untagged alleles of SCC1, then we saw that the GFP signal uh, disappeared very rapidly, quantified here. And this disappearance of GFP was indeed caused by degradation, as could be seen by uh, Western blotting, where the SCC1 protein disappeared both from the chromatin pellet, but also uh, from the supernatant fraction, whereas other subunits of cohesin uh, remain stable, for example, SCC1, um, but interestingly disappeared, were released from chromatin, as you can see here, uh, at the same time as SCC1 was degraded, exactly as one would have predicted, since we know that these are subunits of the same uh, cohesin complex. So this turned out to be a very efficient and, and also rapid, by the way, way of inactivating cohesin. And so the question then was, what would now happen to chromatin structure? What will we see in high C experiments with respect to the presence of TUDs and loops? And the phenotype is really dramatic. Uh, as is shown in this slide on the right-hand side, you can see the same chromosomal locus that's shown on the left, but now three hours after addition of auxin to the cells that only have cohesin, which is uh, degradable. And you can appreciate that uh, the majority of interactions that constitute tons and loops uh, has gone. They, they, they disappeared, implying that cohesin is indeed needed for these long-range interactions. And we've also looked at earlier time points uh, by HiC and can see, consistent with the disappearance of SCC1, uh, that these structures be begin to diminish already after 15 to 20 minutes. So clearly they depend uh, on cohesin. That's one reason for believing that cohesin is important for folding uh, DNA in mammalian genomes. Uh, the other reason for believing that comes from a very different type of experiment, which initially we did for a different reason, where we wanted to know why cells uh, have a, an elaborate system by which they can remove cohesin from chromatin again using the release factor WAPL, which I introduced in the first part of this lecture, which we think is a protein that binds to cohesin and opens the ring structure, thereby enables it to dissociate from DNA again, uh, which clearly happens um, to complexes that have not established cohesion um, in, in G1 phase, for example. Now, because WAPL is a release factor, um, we had expected that its removal would now stabilize cohesin or chromatin. It would have a longer residence time. 
And we also expected that as a result of that, there would over time be more cohesion accumulating on chromatin, because there's always an equilibrium between soluble and DNA-bound cohesion. And if we removed WAPL, then of course the prediction was it would continue to be loaded onto DNA cohesion, but would no longer be released. So it would have a long residence time, and it would be there in higher amounts. And that is in, indeed exactly what we found. But what we had not expected was that this, these um, changes would have dramatic effects um, on chromatin structure and also on the localization or the distribution of cohesin within the nucleus. And that's shown on this slide, where on the top you can see the mammalian cell nucleus stained with DAPI, so the DNA is stained. Um, you can see uh, a relatively amorphous staining pattern, which is typical for a cell in G1 phase, which this is. But after inactivation of WAPL, now we can see that the DNA had begun to become condensed, as if it had entered prophase, early mitosis, which this cell clearly hadn't by all sorts of criteria that we looked at. Even more surprisingly, we found that the distribution of cohesin was dramatically changed. Normally, as seen by fluorescence microscopy, cohesin would be distributed on chromatin relatively evenly, as you see here in this control cell. But after WAPL depletion, now, um, it had changed localization and accumulated in axial domains of chromatin territories, uh, which from, from hybridization experiments, we believe, are running from one telomere, so one, from one end of the chromosome, if you wish, to the other. And uh, we called these uh, axial uh, staining patterns vermicelli, which is Italian for little worms, because the student in my lab who discovered them uh, was Italian, Antonio Dedeschi. Uh, so that's what we um, call these structures. Now, um, that was really interesting. Uh, it reminded us of um, how complexes that are related to cohesin are distributed in mitotic and meiotic chromosomes. In mitotic chromosomes, um, the condensin complexes are also adopting an axial distribution. And in meiotic chromosomes, there are different types of cohesin complexes, specialized meiotic forms of cohesin, that also form similar axial structures. And in both cases, it is believed that these axial structures form the base of chromatin loops. So based on that, and based on our hypothesis that cohesin might be folding DNA into loops, as I explained in part one of the lecture, we hypothesize that these vermicelli, these axial domains, might also represent the base of chromatin loops in WAPL-depleted cells. Now, that was very exciting, but the real question, of course, was how would the depletion of a release factor, which leads to stabilization of cohesin or chromatin, lead to this dramatic relocalization of cohesin into vermicelli, and how would it then somehow lead to compaction of DNA? That was really unclear. And it was uh, Leonid Mini, a polymer physicist at MIT, realized that both these phenotypes could be explained by a very interesting hypothesis called the loop extrusion hypothesis. This hypothesis um, has been postulated multiple times uh, over a number of decades independently, starting with Arthur um, Briggs and, and others working on enhancer-promoter interactions who were faced with the question, how could a distant enhancer element in, in DNA find its target gene promoter? 
and they speculated, they hypothesized that maybe it would find it by what today we would call an extrusion mechanism. I'll explain in a second what that is. Uh, then Kim Naismith postulated that condensin would form loops by such a mechanism in mitotic chromosomes and by extension maybe also cohesin would do something similar. And then after that, uh, Leonid Mirny and several others, Eris Lieberman Aydin uh, and John Marco uh, also came up with this idea. Now the Mirny lab realized that this hypothesis could explain our Wappel depletion phenotype uh, because the loop extrusion hypothesis posits that maybe two different sequences would specifically be brought into proximity, not by diffusion, that's hard to imagine, but by a mechanism where a hypothetical extrusion factor would land somewhere on the genome, and then by an unknown mechanism would pump DNA into a loop-like structure until it would reach eventually the anchor sequences that would be defined or would, would be the, the sequences that should form the base of such a loop. And if one imagines cohesion could be such a loop extrusion factor, uh, it could explain why Wappel depletion would give these really unusual phenotypes, unexpected phenotypes, in the sense that if Wappel was present, we would know that it would limit the residence time of cohesin on chromatin. And so if cohesin was forming a loop by extrusion, the lifetime of such a loop, and therefore also its length, would be limited, because every couple of minutes or so, Wappel would release the cohesin complex again, and the loop would fall apart. But if Wappel was now depleted, cohesin could no longer be released. It would have a long residence time, and it could now form very long loops, um, longer than usually. And in theory, uh, they could be so long that eventually uh, the cohesin complexes could bump into each other, and that could explain why we saw them now all of a sudden accumulating in axial domains within interface chromatin territories. And at the same time, the formation of long loops could explain why chromatin became compacted because it is thought that formation of long loops, and that's been supported by in silico simulations and polymer modeling, are causally responsible for chromatin uh, compaction. Now, this uh, hypothesis made uh, the very interesting prediction that uh, when we depleted WAPO, we should now be able to detect more long uh, loops, more long-range interactions by high C. And both my lab and also the one of uh, Ben Rowland have tested this and indeed found that that's the case, as is shown in this slide, where on the left you see again a high C matrix from a control cell. But then on the right-hand side you see a high C matrix from a cell from which Wappel was uh, depleted. And I hope you can see that now there are additional long-range interactions in the Wappel-depleted cells that cannot be detected at least to the same extent in the control cells, implying that now more long-range in, uh, interactions had been formed. We showed that these, again, depend on cohesion, um, of course. Now, in um, the first part of this lecture series, I explained that initially we had speculated that cohesion would be the molecule that mediates uh, long-range interactions to form chromatin loops, but it would be CTCF, or its ability to recognize a particular consensus sequence in the genome that would um, specify the identity of these loop anchors. Now, if cohesin was mediating loop formation by extrusion, the question is what could be the role of CTCF in this process? Now, obviously, 
uh, CTCF could function in this process as a physical boundary. Uh, everything that we know about these loops could be explained if one assumes that extruding cohesion complexes were stopped in their extrusion process once they encountered CTCF when it's bound to DNA. And that would, in fact, very nicely explain the observation that cohesin accumulates, as one can see by chromatin immunoprecipitation, at CTCF sites and therefore seems to co-localize, at least if one analyzes large populations of cells. So uh, the loop extrusion hypothesis would predict that CTCF must be a physical boundary for extruding cohesin complexes. Now, what is very interesting in this context is, is that the binding site for or the consensus site for CTCF is not a symmetrical sequence, but asymmetric. It's not a palindrome. And for that reason, can exist in two different orientations in the genome, implying that CTCF can bind in two different orientations. Now, that in itself is not unusual for DNA binding proteins, but what is very unusual is that a number of labs have observed that those CTCF sites that form the anchors of cohesin-mediated loops uh, are always pointing towards each other in their orientation. And that implies uh, that CTCF may not only function as a simple physical barrier, but may function as a boundary in an asymmetric fashion, implying that if cohesin was arriving from one side at such a DNA-bound CTCF molecule, it might block extrusion. But if it's arriving from the other, it might not. And in fact, uh, much exact in my laboratory has recently been able to reconstitute um, part of this boundary function using recombinant CTCF and cohesin and has seen that indeed, under in vitro conditions, CTCF is sufficient to block translocating cohesin complexes that arrive at a CTCF site from one side, but cannot block cohesin if it's translocating along DNA from the other side. And how that works mechanistically, what the structure of CTCF looks like to be able to achieve this unusual symmetry will be a very interesting question to study in the future. Now, that in itself uh, then represents another complication because if these CTCF sites function as boundaries for loop extruding cohesion complexes, why would then the loops become longer if Wappel is depleted? And we don't know the answer to that, uh, but one has to postulate that they do become longer because these boundary elements, these CTCF sites, are only transient boundaries either because CTCF dissociates and rebinds, and while it does that, cohesin can go past and form a longer loop, or be perhaps because cohesin can somehow at some point jump over such a CTCF boundary and thereby form a longer loop. So we think of them a bit like red streetlights in a traffic system where cars would accumulate in front of the red streetlight, um, but of course at some point the, the streetlight would switch to green and then the cars would move on. And maybe that's how cohesin somehow um, analogously behaves with respect to CTCF as a boundary element. Uh, but what is interesting is that the, the longer loops that we see after our depletion that's shown here uh, indeed occur as discrete dots on these high C matrices. So it's not a range of long-range interactions. It's, it's very discrete longer loops that can be seen. And if one looks at the sequences underlying the anchors of these loops, it turns out that each of them represents a CTCF binding site, as if cohesin now having a long residence time would be able to sit long enough on DNA to go beyond one CTCF boundary, but then would stop at the next one until it could go over that, and then would stop at the next one. 
again, in analogy to the, to the red streetlight model. Now, uh, if this was all uh, correct, then this loop extrusion hypothesis would make a number of predictions, namely that the binding of cohesin that we had initially identified by chromatin immunoprecitation as being found in very discrete peaks, I showed that an example in part one, would in fact not uh, represent how cohesin really behaves on, on genomic DNA, um, but would basically be um, an image that emerges from superimposing the behavior of many cohesin complexes in large populations of cells. And that in reality, cohesin would be highly mobile in the genome. It would be extruding loops all the time. And only the complexes that would be stopped by CTCF would then be present in these peaks that one sees by chromatin IP. Um, so the hypothesis was a cohesin would be highly mobile, but would be constrained once it hits a CTCF site. And another important prediction uh, would be that CTCF itself would not be important for the long-range interaction, uh, but would define where they are being formed. It would be what recognizes a particular sequence and thereby specifies what the loop anchor should be. And so both of these predictions have been tested by us and others, of course. First to the question, is cohesin mobile in the genome and is it constrained by CTCF? To test this, we have depleted CTCF, uh, initially by RNAi, and this experiment by using a mouse model provided by Niels Galliard, where inducibly the CTCF gene could be deleted. And when we did that, we indeed found that cohesin no longer would now accumulate to the same extent at CTCF sites. That's shown here, where you're looking at chromatin immunoprecipitation results, and you're looking at one of thousands of CTCF sites that are present in mammalian genomes. And you see that at the same site, cohesin can be detected also by chip chromatin IP, provided CTCF is there. But if CTCF is depleted, because the gene has been deleted, now much less cohesin accumulates there. That's true not just for this side, but for, for thousands of sites. Now, interestingly, what we had expected is that under these conditions, cohesin accumulates at different sites. Um, as you can see here, it often accumulates at the promoter of genes uh, at transcription start sites for reasons that are not well um, understood. Uh, but implying that indeed cohesin is highly mobile in the genome and not statically uh, sitting at one site. Now, that can be even seen more impressively or more clearly in, in cells where not only CTCF has been depleted, but also the release factor WAPO. And, and an example for that is shown here, where again you're looking at chromatin immunoprecipitation results, uh, where you're seeing one uh, of many thousand CTCF sites, which normally co-localizes with cohesin, provided that CTCF is there. As I just showed in the previous slide, if CTCF is depleted, then cohesin is no longer accumulating there to the same extent, but now instead uh, accumulates at transcription start sites. One is here, another one is shown here, there. Uh, but what is really interesting is what happens if now in addition to CTCF, um, this condition, also WAPL is depleted. So that now cohesin has neither its normal boundary um, nor its short residence time, but instead a long residence time of chromatin. And now you can see a very dramatic effect, namely that cohesin accumulates in very large regions, not looking like a regular peak, 
Uh, and these so-called cohesion islands, as we call them, are typically found at the three prime end of active genes, in particular at the three prime end um, at loci where two genes converge on each other. One is being transcribed from left to right and the other from the other strand from right to left. And at these convergent uh, locations, cohesin now is accumulating, provided there was no CTCF as a boundary and Ruppel was depleted, so it has a long residence time. Uh, implying that, yes, it must be highly mobile in the genome. It's probably moving around all the time. Um, but normally is seen accumulating in cell populations at CTCF sites. Um, but then can go to very different places if these boundaries are gone. So that's clearly consistent with the loop extrusion hypothesis. Now, what do we know about the role of CTCF in this process? Uh, the loop extrusion hypothesis posits that it would not be needed for forming long-range interactions, but instead would specify which sequences form these interactions. And indeed, the data that we and others have are consistent with this idea. Again, if we look by Hi-C, um, in the presence of CTCF or in cells depleted of CTCF, uh, this experiment was not done genetically, but again by using oxygen-induced degradation of CTCF in this case. Uh, first of all, we can see that superficially the two high-C patterns look very similar. You see there's still lots of interactions present, and one can analyze this also genome-wide by plotting uh, all the interactions, this is shown in this graph down here on the y-axis, as a function of the genomic distance on the x-axis. And this graph must look to you like uh, just one line, but in reality it's two lines superimposed, one representing the distribution of interactions in the control cells that have CTCF, and the other representing the interactions in cells depleted for CTCF. So the result is there is no change. The interactions are still all being formed, and their number is roughly similar, and their length distribution in the genome is also roughly similar. So that clearly tells us that CTCF can't be essential for the formation of these interactions. That's because we think cohesin is mediating them. Now, but if you look more carefully, you can, you can appreciate two differences, and, and they're interesting. First of all, uh, one can see, if one looks very carefully, uh, as ex explained at the beginning, that at the, at the corner of these tuds, there are often uh, these... Uh, dots, which we think are loops that have been formed. Um, and they can no longer be clearly detected um, after depletion of CTCF, as you can see here. The arrows are pointing at this. And genome-wide, one can quantify this using special algorithms that's shown in the histogram on the bottom, where you can see that the number of loops one can algorithmically detect after CTCF depletion is much reduced. And a similar phenomenon is seen if one looks at the boundaries between TUDs, uh, which in the presence of CTCF appear as relatively distinct and sharp boundaries. But after depletion of CTCF, now are much more fuzzy. And that can again be genome-wide analyzed algorithmically as a so-called TUD insulation score. And one can see that this is much reduced um, after, not abolished, but reduced um, after CTCF degradation. So what these results imply is that CTCF is indeed needed for uh, 
the insulation of TADS, presumably because it's normally sitting there and functions as a boundary for extruding cohesion complexes. And the fact that um, one can no longer detect so many loops in the absence of CTCF is presumably not because these loops are not being formed. We think they are all there. But no longer they are confined exactly to the CTCF binding site as a sequence anchor. Because without CTCF, cohesion can now go a little further than normally and would form loops that are less specified, less, less defined in these large cell populations that are being analyzed here. So these data are consistent with the idea that cohesion is essential for tuts and loops. I showed you that at the beginning. Um, it forms clearly longer loops if WAPL is depleted and cohesion now has a longer residence time. Uh, and clearly, cohesion must be highly mobile in the genome. And what we typically see in chromatin IP experiments is just the average of where most cohesion has accumulated, but not really showing us where in individual cells uh, cohesion would be present while it's extruding loops. And for CTCF, the data are, are consistent with the idea that it's not essential for the actual long-range interactions, because these are mediated by cohesin, but is needed to specify them by telling cohesin where to stop the loop extrusion process. And, and uh, that would then form these less sharp tut boundaries and, and would result in the reduction uh, of loops that can be detected. Now, these phenotypes, uh, in the case of CTCF depletion, are clearly not null phenotypes. You can see there are still some tut boundaries. And so an important question for the future will be, is that because CTCF wasn't fully degraded? We think it is not uh, by this AID system, so that could be one reason. But of course, it could also be that there's other boundaries or other molecules that contribute to a boundary function. And that's why CTCF depletion has a partial loss of tut insulation in order for phenotype that remains to be explored. Now, towards the end, let me briefly discuss with you what we know or don't about the really important question then of how cohesion in mechanistic terms might be forming chromatin loops, and in particular whether it does so by loop extrusion. And the short answer is we don't know. Uh, but before I summarize for you what we know about cohesion, uh, let's, let me turn to cohesion's cousin, the condensing complex, which, as I mentioned, is thought to be responsible for forming long chromatin loops on mitotic chromosomes, and thereby condensing uh, these uh, chromosomes. And very recent work from Christian Hering and Case Decker has shown that if one prepares or isolates these complexes, the condensing complexes, from budding yeast and uses them in similar assays, to, to have microscopy assays, to the ones I've just shown, one can indeed see that these yeast condensing preparations have an activity which is able to extrude a loop. That's extremely exciting. It was published last year. That's just to remind you that cohesion and condensin are complex, uh, complexes are related, and, and they both accumulate in axial elements um, under the right uh, conditions. Now, if we watch this movie, you can see here a DNA molecule that's tethered at both ends of the glass surface uh, under buffer flow. And you will see in a minute that uh, one arm of this um, synthetic DNA loop, if you wish, is shortened at the expense of a new loop that's being formed here, uh, coming out of this doubly tethered DNA molecule. The idea being that condensin must be sitting here in the center of this doubly tethered DNA molecule and must be pumping DNA from one side you know, into 
a loop uh, structure. Uh, and that's schematically shown uh, in this uh, illustration from uh, the paper from Case Decker and Christian Hearing, um, according to which uh, condensin must be sitting uh, on this doubly tethered DNA molecule and must be pumping uh, DNA uh, from it into such a loop-like um, structure, as you can see here. Now, such an activity has not been seen for cohesin yet, um, but this type, this result clearly um, illustrates that members of the SMC family must have activities that are able to form uh, DNA loops. Now, that raises the really interesting question whether cohesin can not only function as a topological linker, as which it is thought to function when it mediates cohesion by embracing the two sister DNA molecules inside its ring structure, but whether it can actively form chromatin loops um, and perhaps, therefore, um, is a molecular motor, more related to other motor proteins like kinesins or myosins or dynein and whether it could use its ATP binding and hydrolysis activity, which it clearly has, uh, for that purpose. And very recent experiments uh, performed in my laboratory by Maxim Molotsov and Benigli Bauer uh, have indeed provided evidence that cohesin um, has such a motor function. This evidence comes from experiments uh, in which we have tethered cohesin uh, to a glass surface with one of its subunits and then connected one of the other SMC subunits to a long handle, uh, a coiled coil, which again is connected with a bead, the position of which can be controlled by a laser beam. And this so-called optical tweezer type of experiment allows, at the piconewton scale, a measurement of forces that are generated by proteins, uh, such as motor proteins. And it turns out, uh, from these type of experiments, that indeed, under the right conditions, uh, cohesin is able to perform a power stroke, to, to perform mechanical work, uh, which we think it uses to bend DNA. Um, and from these experiments, which are not published yet, we have reasons to believe, therefore, that cohesin can not only form, and the sorry, can not only function as a passive linking molecule, which it is what it seems to do during cohesion, but instead is an active motor uh, and uses that activity to bend DNA. And we've also found that the ATPase activity and the NRPBL protein, which has previously shown to load cohesion onto DNA, are needed for this motor function. And so that quite radically changes our view of how cohesion um, is functioning at the, at the mechanistic level. But at the same time raises many new questions, uh, in particular the ones that I have listed here namely how cohesin could bend DNA. For that, it would have to be able to bind to it directly. And so we are trying to understand how it can do that. The topological interaction that has been described before would obviously not be sufficient for such a bending activity. Uh, we would very much like to understand whether this um, ability to bend DNA and function as a motor is important for structuring chromatin into loops and cells. Um, again, that needs to be tested. And obviously, it would be very important to know whether this motor activity that we can measure by optical tweezer experiments um, is required for loop extrusion for the type of DNA loop formation that Case Decker and Christian Herring have observed for yeast condensin, but no one has observed for cohesin yet. And so these are very exciting questions for the future that I'm sure the field will answer in the coming years.
Now, I would like to thank you again for your attention, uh, but also my uh, former and past members uh, of the lab, which have uh, done uh, fantastic work, which has contributed to the knowledge that I've summarized here, um, as well as to all other colleagues in the field uh, that have contributed to what I told you about today. And last but not least, to our shareholders and, and funding agencies, which have made our work possible. Thank you very much. Visit us at iBiology.org for more free talks from the world's top scientists. Funding is provided by the National Science Foundation and the National Institute of General Medical Sciences.